The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything that you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads, ensure that you can take on any adventure. Available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone. I've been so pumped to take a couple of friends with our road bikes to some of the trails nearby, and now I can bring the entire crew, my dog, and all of our gear with that third row. Learn more about the new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. You're tuned in to Heat Check with Trista Crick. On this episode of the Heat Check, the NBA and the NBA PA have signed a new collective bargaining agreement, at least in theory, and it is the biggest news in the league since the bubble. So many ramifications, it's so complicated, I had to bring on one of the only people qualified enough to break this down, Track's Keith Smith. It's actually Track, not Track, so we got that all settled. So much to cover. Let's skip the bullshit. Let's get right into it and drop that generic-ass beat. So the biggest news of the year, probably several years to be honest, is that the NBA and the NBA PA have hammered out this new collective bargaining agreement. We only know some of the details, and there are major, major changes coming next year. Monumental changes. Before we bring on Keith, our favorite NBA guru, to explain it all to us, I just wanted to sort of break down some of the things that are getting changed. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and Players Union Director Tamika Tremelio, they should get a bunch of credit. Honestly, they work together to get the deal done before the CBA ends. And let's be honest, other leagues like the NFL and Major League Baseball, they never do that, ever. They know they're going to get a bag from the new rights deal. And they're like, yo, before we get money from Amazon, Apple, ESPN, Turner, whatever, uh, a deal that's probably going to be speculated around $75 billion in total, we should probably figure that out. Right, We should probably have 75 billion reasons to treat each other well because of a, a lock outcomes. We are fucked. Anyway, labor peace for the next seven years. Here's the 411. Hasn't officially been ratified yet. Only part of it has been reported. This new CBA, though, has given existing players greater freedom on a personal level, right? They can invest in NBA and WNBA teams while they're a current player. Uh, they can now be sponsored by sports betting companies. They can smoke weed. Uh, and not get tested, which I think is like one of the least important things. But hey, smoke on if you want to smoke. You can be sponsored by a weed company or a CBD company. Um, they have continued to keep the one-and-done rule. So young kids can't get into the league. Veterans didn't want it. The league didn't want it. Nobody wanted it, really, but they didn't want to be bad guys. So college basketball remains the same. In terms of roster building, the CBA makes a bunch of changes. There's a new salary cap, new luxury cap rules. It makes it harder to create these super teams. makes it easier for teams to organically build rosters through the draft, a la Oklahoma City Thunder. Some of the changes, like the 65 minimum game qualification requirement for an NBA award, is going to affect salaries. It determines who is going to be eligible for the super max extension. That's a lot even just there. There's also major changes to the schedule. Adam Silver has gotten his major in-season tournament done. Some of the changes are going to impact the draft. There's a so-called Rob Palinka rule on how teams can sign second-round picks so they don't end up losing them like they did on Alex Caruso because they don't want to give those players the mid-level exception. Since the last CBA was like 598 pages of legalese, indecipherable, we have Keith Smith who does this shit for a living day in, day out from Spot Track. He is our resident numbers guru. We also ask him some changes about the T that's going on with the NBA as well. He is here to break down the CBA and what it means. You can find him on Spot Track and on Twitter at KeysmithNBA. Without further ado, here's me and Keith's interview. I want to talk about the CBA because there's not that many people who really understand it and you working for Spotrack and you being around the league for as long as you are, you were the first person that came to mind. So thankfully we already had this interview scheduled. <laughs> um, when you took the time to absorb the main changes in the CBA, what was your first overall reaction? 
I think they made it so that the middle class of the league is going to have some significant advantages in acquiring players. They made it harder for the most expensive teams to acquire players, but they also gave them avenues to keep players that they already have. If I think the problem with a so-called hard cap was always going to be, hey, if we're the Warriors, because that's the team everybody uses for as an example, and we've drafted really well and developed really well, why should we get penalized and have to lose guys? And I think the NBA basically, along with the NBPA, said, you know what, you're kind of right. But we still can't have you trading for everybody under the sun and signing a bunch of guys and that. So we're going to put in some limiters on you that'll make it hard. And it's not just the Warriors. The Clippers are in that boat. There's a handful of other teams that'll probably be in that position over the next few years. But it's we're going to make it harder on you to do get new players that don't come through the draft and through minimum signings and the like. And then for the uh, middle-class teams, we're going to give you a whole bunch of ways that you can go get players that maybe you didn't have available to you in the past. So I think they're just trying to increase that parity around the league. There's a lot of people who think that this is a, these are seismic changes that we're not going to really fully understand for years to come. In your opinion, how monumental is it? I think they're pretty big. I, I think we're going to see some teams – the kind of buzzword right now is what are the unintended consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's always – you get into this stuff, you feel really good about where it is, and then one thing we know that these teams do, they hire really smart people who find ways to work around all the rules they put in place. It's a big part of it. I always say, you know, the, the CBA is a agreement to make it fair. And then it's people's jobs to find ways to work around that inherent fairness, to give themselves advantages, to find loopholes, all those things. So I think what's going to happen is it is going to take years for this to fully play out because it's not like one, all these changes are coming in immediately next season. Some of these things they've already said, they're going to be phased in over a period of time. And I think that's fair to the teams because if we stick with that Warriors example, well, they've already built the roster they've built. It's not necessarily fair to say, all right, hey, all the tools you had, you lose them all right now. Now you've got to kind of reset and restart right from square one. So I think we'll see some phasing in of some of these, these changes. I think the other part of it too is, we got to see how teams react to these things because teams are going to make different decisions than they might have otherwise. We may see teams say, you know what, once we're up and over this second tax apron, which I think sounds silly, so I'm calling it the super tax because I think that sounds way cooler. Yeah. Um, so once you're over the super tax, you're going to be in a spot where, wow, you know, we really got to resign our own guys because we have no other way to get talent. Or I think the other option is we're in a position where, some teams are going to say, all right, you know what? We got to let player X go because we got to get our books in order. And the only way is to start shedding some salary. So we're going to let him go. And you're going to just see differences in, you know, uh, roster building and those kind of things. I think drafting well, developing well is going to have more importance than it's maybe ever had in the league because having uh, one cost control players is going to be huge and those things. But these again are changes. We're going to, it's going to take us probably three, four years right into the middle of this uh, six, seven year agreement to really start to feel the full effect of. It was reported that there were like hundreds of proposals throughout the time. What was the NBA itself, the league trying to achieve with these changes and, and what was the MBPA trying to achieve with the changes? Yeah, the good news is it seems like they went into this on roughly the same page with a lot of the stuff. The first big thing that they were really good with was the revenue split. That It's, it's essentially a 50-50 split. It can range from 49 to 51, but it's essentially 50-50. Once you're good there, that makes everything else easier. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it makes it easier. And I think, you know, they were, it's funny, I was told direct by someone involved was, yeah, the one and done rule negotiation was like, NBA doesn't want this. NBPA doesn't really want this. So why is this a conversation? Well, neither one wanted to be the one to say like, hey, we don't want this because then they look like the bad guy. But I think the NBA's main goal was let's increase some of this parity and let's make sure we are not, um, Getting into a world where, hey, if you're one of the most, uh, you know, 
richest teams in the league, for lack of a better term, and you are in a big market, you can just outspend everybody by a level that the playing field just is is vast and separated. It starts to look a little bit like, yeah, we have a cap, but what difference does it make if you can just keep adding salary and keep adding salary? So I think that was their goal. I think the MBPA's goal was, all right, we can work with you within that, but what we want to do is if you're going to cap those top teams on how much they can spend, it can't be that that just goes away. We need to push it back into the market somewhere because their end goal is now with the addition of a third two-way spot, they're going to have up to 540 guys in the league at a time. And it's, we got to take care of 500 plus players. It's not just about LeBron James and Steph Curry and the guys who make 40, 50 million a year. We got to take care of all the way down. And I think that's some of the stuff that they, they, they wanted. And I think in a lot of ways, they came to some pretty good agreements on that stuff where it is, all right, Hey, we're going to give here, but you give here and that rebalances. And we'll see how that rebalances the league ultimately in the end. Draymond was very upset. He tweeted that the players got <laughs> screwed. He said, I don't understand how we are the driving labor of this entire system and we end up, you know, getting the short end of the stick. What do you think, if you had to guess, because I'm sure you know, there's a lot of things that he could have issue with, what, what do you think, is there any one thing or a couple of things that would make him feel this way or have other players feel this way? Yeah, I think there's a few things with that. I think the first was, that was probably an immediate reaction because the first handful of things that came out were, wow, this doesn't look great for the players. It was kind of that was like the Saturday reporting. When we got into Sunday's reporting, it was like, whoa, wait a minute. They can invest in NBA teams and WNBA teams. They're broadening what they can be corporate partners on and those sort of things. And then when you saw a lot of those changes, like, all right, this makes a lot more sense. I don't presume to know what details Draymond Green had and didn't have. I can tell you, I know I've talked to people on both the player side and the team side. And they don't have all the details yet because this is kind of agreed to in principle and they're still hammering stuff out. That's that's why we don't have you know a leaked full term sheet. And it's like every two hours we're getting like, here's another detail because it's kind of, all right, we, we finished it and go. So I'm guessing it was probably a bit of an overreaction to the immediate reporting on it. And I think there's also a... A, this was personal to him because in a lot of ways you could call some of those immediate measures like the Warriors measures of like, hey, we can't have another Warriors come along, right? And it's funny because, and I keep using them as the example, even the last couple of years, the Clippers have outspent everybody. So I think what we run into in this situation with these guys is they run into a spot where it is, hey, like we want to, you know, I, I, I'm going to spout off but it's because this is hurting me and my team. And if I resign here, like we're not going to be able to go sign other guys and all these sorts of things. So I kind of get where he's coming from. Cause I think in a sense, he's just trying to take care of him himself and the guys he's most immediate with right now. Do you think that the league does not want dynasties? It's a good question. I, I think they welcome dynasties like kind of what the Warriors have been, which is the core of the team was drafted. They were developed by them. They kind of came and grew up together and came into prominence together. And then they've made really smart moves around those guys to kind of supplement them. But if you look at their main guys, because everybody has a, and I don't mean to denigrate like Dante DiVincenzo and the Jermichael Green, but every team has guys like that, right? A guy they signed with the mid-level exception, a guy they signed on a minimum contract. But if you're the Warriors, other than Andrew Wiggins, which was shrewd salary slot management by, all right, hey, Kevin Durant's going to Brooklyn. Hey, why don't we make that a sign-in trade, double sign-in trade, where we get D'Angelo Russell and we preserve that $30 million salary slot. And then it was, all right, now we're going to move him on to get Andrew Wiggins. But outside of Andrew Wiggins, every single guy in their rotation, they drafted and they developed. Curry, Thompson, Green, Looney, Poole, uh, Kaminga. Those are all their own draft picks. So I think the league is in a spot where if you do it that way, and I don't, I, I, I hate to say any way of building a roster is the right way. I think there's a million right ways, and there's definitely some wrong ways for sure. Um, but if you build it in that way, 
we're going to give you the ability. You can keep it together. Keep paying all those guys because we're not restricting you on paying those guys and just keep going. So I don't think they're against dynasties. I think what they don't want to see is the, all right, hey, we loaded up in two years and then we kept adding, kept adding, kept adding. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, we've outspent everybody by, you know, a hundred million dollars. And, you know, we're, we're just kind of, I think they don't like the Clippers kind of run of let's just keep replacing. And then, all right, hey, this guy who makes 25, we're going to turn him into a $35 million player and those kind of things. I think that's where it gets really messy for the league and the league doesn't like that kind of team building because then it just looks like the rich get richer. Can you explain how it fundamentally changes, how trades are made kind of in the technical way? Sure, yeah. So from the details we know right now, the kind of normal everyday trade between two teams that are well under the tax or maybe just at the tax line, that'll pretty much stay the same. You'll have a little bit of a a range where you can work in. You might be able to trade a $20 million guy and bring in somebody who makes $25 million, and and that's kind of the range it's always been in. But for these so-called super tax teams, the big thing is they can't take on any additional money in trades if all the reporting proves to be accurate. So what's going to happen for them is if I want to trade a $20 million player, I can only bring in $20 million or less in salary. I don't have that ability to go get somebody else. And that's just going to make things a little bit difficult on them. Now, I mentioned before, smart teams are going to find workarounds. They're going to do things. What we may see end up happening is, okay, that guy who's on our roster makes $20 million. We're going to re-sign him for $30 million. Mostly so now we have a $30 million trade chip and we can go get that $25 million player or a $30 million player that wouldn't be available to us prior. So that's the kind of roster maneuvering I think you're going to see from some of those teams. It's going to become a lot more about salary slots than essentially the players that are filling them. And that's sometimes even me, Mr. Salary Cap is like, that's a I feel gross thinking of it that way because it's like they're still human beings and they're still players. But at the end of the day, I don't feel too gross because that guy's going to make 25 or 30 million. So, you know, it kind of is what it is. You sign up for that much money, you're probably signing up to maybe be traded. Yeah. What do you, what blockbuster trades for those who, you know, maybe don't know happened recently that would not be allowed in this new CBA? Yeah, and there there were there's a handful. So the immediate ones that come to mind this year are um, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving because both of those teams, Phoenix and Dallas, would be uh, you know over the super tax or into the super tax, and in that position they would not have been able to take on money, which both of them did in their trades to to get those guys. Another uh, you know if we go back, James Harden to Brooklyn is one, even one from this summer, a team that's not necessarily super expensive, like Malcolm Brogdon uh, to the Celtics is another one that might not have happened. So I think we're in a position where, yeah, a handful of these these trades um, may not have happened that have happened otherwise. Anything that was even something as kind of low-key, low-end, that nice move, but no one really cares about it. Like even like Mike Mascala to the Celtics right before the trade deadline kind of buzzed, was they brought him in with sending no salary out the other way, um, in, even in or sending very little out the other way and brought him in via an exception. And that becomes a one where that wouldn't have been able to happen. Even a small minor deal like that, that was, hey, we're going to add some bench depth for a playoff run. You wouldn't have been able to do those things. And those are the things where we're, we're going to see teams have to have a different strategy on moving forward. So I don't want to be one of those people who puts on a tinfoil hat, but this is the first thing. <laughs> that came to mind as you said that Kyrie vice president of the MBPA is there any chance that that factored in this new CBA factored in to Kyrie seeing the writing on the wall and saying this is kind of my shot to get to another team and therefore as well as Kevin if those both of those trades weren't going to be possible moving forward Maybe. I don't know how deep they were into the negotiations at at that point that all that went down. And I tend to, like, anytime I think I have Kyrie kind of pegged, I realize I'm completely wrong and I don't know anything about the guy. Um, He remains, you know, one of the more confusing players in the league to, to me. And I don't even necessarily mean that in a bad way. I just, you know, he's just, there's things I just don't understand with him. So 
it, it's it's certainly possible. I, I think we, you know, he may have been like, hey, they're, you know, what I know through negotiations is they're tightening things up. They're going to make it harder on us to figure things out. But I think we're in a position where, yeah, it's probably one of those things where it's, this just was kind of an offshoot. And I, I don't know how much he cared about that. I think it was much more other reasons where he's like, Hey, this Nets thing's going nowhere. I can't get to the Lakers right now, but I still want to get out of here. And then I'll figure out my next move after that. Let's talk about the ramifications though, because it feels like it's the death of super teams to a degree. Yeah. It's going to be very hard to put together a super team on the fly. Um, because that, and it's already kind of hard anyway, with some of the things that have happened with the cap and the like, but it's really, I think now your super teams are going to be more, um, let's use Oklahoma city as an example. They've drafted really well. They've got a bunch of really good young players and they've got flexibility while they're still a quote unquote cheaper team roster wise to add a bunch more talent in as they kind of build this thing up. And then what happens is they'll be able to build all the way up to becoming potentially one of these super tax teams. And that's how you'll build your super team is you draft well, you develop well, you add talent while you're cheap. And now you've got your eight, nine, 10 man roster filled out with a bunch of really good players, a little bit of moves you can make here and there around that, but that's how you'll build your team up. I think the days of teams, Hey, we're clearing the deck, right? We're 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 going all the way down to barely any salary on the books, and we're going to go get three max free agents. I think what we've seen, and I think it's a lesson the Lakers have taught teams over the last couple of years, is if you don't hit on the exact right three guys and then nail all of your minimum signings after that, because that's essentially all you have left, you're going to struggle. Because if those guys miss times or miss games, rather all of a sudden you're in a spot where you can't win because you're, you're rolling out guys who are, you know, fringe NBA players for, uh, you know, 25, 30, 40 minutes a night in too many of these games. So I, th- I think that's kind of gone by the wayside already, but I think even more so it's going to be draft, develop, add talent while you're a cheaper team. And that's how you build, build up to, you know, the next kind of dynastic type teams. What about players that are going to be super max eligible and may not be exactly in love with their current situation, it feels like it's a lot more difficult for them to be able to get to another team or force themselves to another team, given how this new CBA is operating. Uh, Do you think that this is one of those situations where star players will end up signing shorter term deals so that they can figure out where they wanna be in free agency? That's a good question. Yeah, this is where I tend to lean to the history of things. Whereas when you put the most possible money in front of a player, they almost always take it. And right, wrong, or indifferent, and I tend to be a little bit more indifferent on it. I don't mind when a player takes a a max contract and then turns and says, two years in, I don't really want to be here, trade me. And why I'm indifferent about it is teams do it all the time. Teams sign guys and then they're a year into a deal that it's not really working out. We're going to move them. And I don't know why collectively as you know, media and fans of, of the NBA, we've decided that's okay. But when a player tries to do it, it's like, hey, you signed a contract. It's, well, so did the team. You know, I also wouldn't have had a problem if the NBA, and there's been no reporting of this in the new CBA yet. We'll see if it's something that comes out later. Put in more restrictions around a trade. Whereas, hey, you sign a Supermax, you're not trade eligible for three seasons of it. And you got to play out more than half of that contract. Maybe that is in there. I don't know. I know that was one of the, you said earlier, there were hundreds of proposals. I know for sure that was one of them that was on the table. But to answer your question is, I tend to think when players really want to be somewhere, They'll make it happen, especially if that team really wants them to be there. There's ways to make it happen. One of the cool changes that they got rid of um, but that came out just in the last couple of days is the restrictions on how many designated players. Those are tend to be like the super max guys. It used to be you can only have like two of one type on your team and two of another type and only one could be acquired via trade. They've eliminated all that. So they basically said, hey, you want to get, you know, 10 Supermax guys somehow on your team, good, good luck. Now we're going to limit you because you're not going to be able to pay you know, more and add more talent around them, but you know, go nuts. So I think we'll still see guys. I think if anything causes short-term contracts, yeah. it's going to be 
every player knows the meteorite steel's coming. And what may come out of that is, all right, we're going into a position where I'm better off signing a two or three year deal here, re-signing in the summer of 2025, even though they put cap smoothing in. So we're not going to see one of these 2016 cap spikes like we saw previous. So I think that changes things a little bit there, but we may see some guys play that kind of game. Besides the Lakers and the Warriors, what teams do you think this deficits the most and what teams do you think this benefits the most? I think the teams that can get kind of dinged by this a little bit are teams like the Celtics, the Bucks, uh, teams that have been, they've been in the tax, but they've never been at the, you know, the Warriors, Clippers, Lakers levels of the tax. So I think that's where 17.5 million over the tax line, that's a lot, but it's not like crazy. Uh, right now, I think we're sitting with six teams above that. So we may see those teams say, all right, we got to let, probably not one of the star guys, but we got to move on from, you know, one of these kind of mid mid range salary type players just to rebalance. So we have flexibility because otherwise it's, we're really locked into this roster teams that are maybe a little older. So like Dallas is slightly older with some parts of their roster. So like they're in a tricky spot. The Bucks definitely older with parts of their roster. They may look at it like Chris Middleton's going to be a free agent. They may say, hey, we re-signed Chris Middleton to a four- or five-year max deal or anything close to that. This is it. This is our team for the next you know, several years unless we make trades. And they may say, all right, you know, he's had injury issues. Maybe they've seen something in his play where they're like, we're, we're, we'll be okay. We'll go a different direction. So I think they're going to be, be different. I think the teams that benefit, it's the teams that I think have – pretty promising young cores and then can add to to those guys uh here while they're still on the lower end salary wise so i already mentioned oklahoma city but orlando's in that boat houston and detroit if they can flip things well somebody's going to get victor Wembanyama. that's like already a huge you know add to your roster and you're going to flip the spurs have generally been pretty smart in those situations so they may be able to turn things around so i think those teams that have pretty good young cores that you can see, all right, I can see that being a playoff core in the next couple of seasons because what they have the ability to do is go add talent to those groups before they get super expensive and fully lock into what they have now. So I think they're the kind of teams that will benefit a little bit here. Even if they tried to go after a big free agent and they didn't have the salaries to match? Yeah, I think so because I think what you're going to see in, in those – like. Again, I, I keep using the Thunder as an example here, but it's it's because I think they're the best one in the league. Yeah. Really good young players, pretty full roster, right? They, they don't have a ton of roster holes. It's not like going into this summer, they have to fill 10 roster spots. They really only have about two or three open roster spots. They're going to have a, almost $30 million in cap space to do it with. So I think back to, remember a few years ago when Philadelphia was like, all right, it's time to start winning. They went out and they signed J.J. Redick to a one-year $19 million deal. It was like, what a ridiculous overpay for J.J. Redick. Well, Philly looked at it and said, look, we only need like two guys. We have all this cap space. Let's give a whole bunch of money to J.J. Redick, who proved to be a really good fit, helped them get into the postseason. And then they, that's how we're going to do it. I think you're going to see Oklahoma City say, there's one guy that we really target, we think fits what we need. And they'll be able to go get that guy, and they may be able to overpay him for a year or two. As long as you do it for a year or two, not the end of the world because the NBA just moves so quickly with the way they'll turn over rosters. As long as you're not locking into a terrible deal for four or five years, you're going to be fine. You'll be able to move on from it and get out of it quickly enough. So I think that's what you're going to see as teams like that do those kind of things where it's like, all right, let's, let's, let's kind of go here. And I think you're going to see some free agents are going to look and say, Oh, that team got one Binyala? All right, I can be the guy now. Me and him, we're now taking this team to the next level and to the playoffs and all that. And a lot of these players, they love nothing more than like, hey, I'm the conquering hero who like, you know, I rode in here and you were awful and now we're a playoff team. You know, shower me, you know, with love. And it's, yeah, you were a part of it, but there are other reasons too. But that's something that, you know, we know free agents love, especially if the money's basically the same just about everywhere for them. Yeah, like a veteran contract for someone who you think can be a table setter. 
a la like what they what the Thunder kind of got in Chris Paul on a short term yeah. deal kind of a deal. I am curious though because this feels the most murky and it feels the most murky in terms of conflicts of interest potentially, but also murky in terms of we don't really know. And now players are going to be current players are going to be able to invest in NBA and WNBA teams. But from what I kind of can gather that this is only happening through the NBA PA selected private equity firm, like what are the logistics of that? Yeah, it seems so. This is something I, I, I try not to speak too in depth about things I don't really understand, but I did a lot of asking because I was very confused on this because I was like, wait, so they're going to because the way it initially came out was like they could get ownership stakes. And my initial question was, so if I play for the Lakers and I own 3% of the team and they trade me to the Rockets, what happens to my 3%? Like, where does that go? And then I, I through conversations, through subsequent reporting, my understanding is what's going to happen is it sounds like there's going to be portions kind of carved out of different places within the league as a whole and within the individual teams, inclusive of the WNBA as well, where players will be able to say, hey, a portion of what you're giving me in my next contract, it'll run through the through the NBPA who will manage it as a collective um, through whoever they choose to manage it. Uh, probably no different than a lot of the ways our like 401ks are run and those kind of things. But it'll be, we've chosen them to run this. And then that's where it'll be, hey, as long as we all keep doing what we should do, this should be a rising tide lifts all boats situation where, yeah, the teams are going to go up in value. They're going to be better but my stake in this is going to go up too. And I have more of a stake and I feel like more of a partner with the league and with the teams as opposed to just a contract employee where I'm just, you know, all right, I'm under contract and this is what it is. It's going to be, we can really push this up uh, from here. So I think that's going to be kind of how that works. I'm very curious to dive deeper into that when we get the actual CBA to understand it more fully. I am curious too. And obviously you, you probably don't know, but the first thing that comes to mind outside of just what teams are going to be in that fund? Is it going to be every team? What happens when teams get sold? Do they distribute that that wealth across the ownership group? But also, like, how does that affect the WNBA? Do we see the WNBA salary cap now explode and invest in more of these young and up-and-coming players? Specifically, you're watching players like Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark bring in 3.5 million viewers on TV. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, Clay- Caitlin Clark's, not going to want to get paid $270,000 on a super max deal <laughs> when she makes like quadruple that in NIL money right now. Yeah, for sure. I, I think what we're going to see with the WNBA and we've, we're starting to see this happen little bits, like little incremental bits is salaries are going to start creeping up more. I think we're also going to see probably expansion of the WNBA where there's going to be new franchises because the single thing, biggest thing I hear is, there's a ton of you know really good players out there that are buried on these benches because there's so few WNBA teams yeah. in comparison. So what happens is I think you combine those two things. And I know one of the big things that they um, be talking to different people within the NBA is kind of the uh, governing body of the WNBA, if you will. One of the big things I've heard through them is, we don't want WNBA players to have to go to Russia in the WNBA offseason to play. We want them to play in the WNBA, then play national team commitments, just like NBA players do. And that's it. We don't want them having to play in two professional leagues just to be able to make a living. Like, that's not where they want it to be. And I, th- I think eventually we'll get there. And I think this is part of it. We've seen countless NBA players, especially more in the recent years, come out in support of the WNBA. So I think part of it is you're going to see them, hey, why they got roped into this is I'm not just investing in the NBA. I'm investing in the WNBA and the game of basketball as a whole. Yeah. I'm curious also about the the players who are now able to sign non-gambling endorsement deals with sports <laughs> betting companies. Make sense of that for me. Yeah, this was one where I saw a lot of reaction where people were like, oh, no. And it, I saw a couple people tweeting like the, the Tony memes from Blue Chips, um, you know, of like, you, what do you mean you took money? You know, and it was, you know, it was only one time, coach. You know, and it was one time. And like, 
I think where this would be a problem is if player X, yo, tweets out, hey, bet on me to get over 20 points tonight. That's where it's like, oh, that's shaky, right? Because then it's, because then is it going to be, you know, the gambling company says, hey, you know, we took way too many people betting you over. Can you score 19 just to make sure we're all okay here? Like, that's where it gets real messy. I think it's probably just going to be, hey, you want to bet? Bet with, you know, this company. And that's just going to be the extent of it. That's what I think it'll be. It maybe extends into, you know, hey, you know, I can't bet on the NBA, but I love to bet on, you know, uh, the NFL or, you know, or whatever it is or, you know, whatever it may Casino be. Casino games that, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I, I think we're going to see things like that uh, where it'll be a player will be in the commercials for, you know, one of the big companies, but it's not going to be specific to like, hey, bet on my team to win the championship or anything like that. Because I think then you run into competitive integrity issues and all sorts of stuff that I don't think the NBA wants to be involved in. Yeah, I was curious about that, too. Do you think there's a possibility we start seeing these, quote unquote, endorsements, like almost like Manning cast type stuff where you've got like a DraftKings has a Draymond Green and a Charles Barkley All-Star Weekend second screen experience or maybe now FanDuel sponsors, you know, the podcast P type of a thing? Yeah, I think we could see definitely things like that because I think the NBA realizes they're smart at the end of the day and the MBPA. There's money to be made, so let's go make more of it, right? Let's go get our chunk of it by, hey, if we can increase these things and we can do that. I mean, we're seeing in arenas all over the country, we're popping up these, you know, know, uh, where gambling is legal, sports books, it sounds like right on site where it's like, hey, you can make your bets here. And I know in the states where it's legal, there's all sorts of stuff being pumped into, you know, hey, grab your phone and, you know, make a bet on the game and those kind of things. So I I think we're going to see them lean into this. I don't think it's going to be you know, man, this is a pl- proliferation of a million guys, you know, go gamble. I think it'll be probably a little bit of a slow burn, but eventually it's going to get there, much like it has become over the last couple of years, where it's just becoming more and more ingrained in the everyday life of sports fans. I forgot to ask you this to circle back really fast about the ownership element, and we'll move forward on the uh, award stuff. But is it possible with how we're seeing the ownership stake work that a LeBron James playing in the NBA could own an expansion team or a part of an expansion team. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where right now I don't think think that's something they're set up to do. So we're going to see if that's where this goes. My guess is this whole invest in the league is a gateway to direct ownership stakes in teams. And I think that may be where this goes uh, going forward. I mean, I think it was, if I remember, I'm going way back here and, you know, a completely different environment. But when like Magic Johnson came out of retirement, he had to give up his ownership stake in the Lakers because he was going to play again and those kind of things. So that's where it becomes pieces of things like that, where I think right now that's probably not, they're trying to do it through this more general investment in the league as a whole. But I think this is the, let's start here. And then that'll be the gateway to eventually, hey, you want to own a chunk of the team you're playing for? Yeah, we can make that work and we can figure that out. Obviously, there's going to have to be a lot of guardrails on that because, you know, what if you're traded? What if you sign somewhere else? What if you do this? Because they're not going to have somebody owning, you know, hey, I own 3% of seven different teams. Like, that's not going to happen. But but we'll see where, where that goes. And, and I think that's a very interesting way to kind of, you know, build a different form of engagement into the franchise as a whole, because now you're, again, you're, you're not just an employee. You're, you're, you're part of it, right? You're, you're part of the whole deal all the way through. Yeah. I want to talk about this because I think it's under, under discussed. The players now in this new CBA have to play at least 65 games to be eligible for any NBA awards as well as all NBA. So who wanted this? Yeah, I think this is probably one where collectively both sides, the NBA and MBPA, heard the screaming about load management. And I think the biggest place it comes in is, you know, I, I, I'm based out of Orlando. It's the Orlando fan 
who bought tickets to see LeBron one time a year. And uh, I played last night. I'm not playing tonight. Right in Orlando, they get a lot of guys on back-to-backs because of Miami. They make the Miami-Orlando trip, and they're on one end or the other, and that's how it goes. So I think what we see in these positions is I think a lot of these these it just gets so loud that it was probably a, we got to do something. Now you tell the MBPA they've stood up and screamed from the rooftops. It's not the players. The players do not want to sit, right? If they're healthy, they generally want to play. It's the teams. And they're not saying the teams are wrong in this, but it's the teams that are mostly making this, these decisions. And that's, that's what I think also gets lost a little bit here is I think it's hard to, we, Right, the teams are the permanent part in your life as a fan, right? And it's 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 an, that's a nice way of saying we root for laundry, but I think that's true to an extent. Of like, I'm always going to root for this team, and the players may change, so I'm not necessarily going to attach to to the player. And now, I think we're seeing different forms of fandom where some are attaching to a player, and then player changes teams, they follow right along with the new team. But I think what's happened here is the overall load management blame has fallen so much on the players. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. Now I think what the league's trying to do is say, Hey, can we curb this? Because teams are now down to somewhere between 12 and 16 back to backs per season. So 65 games, you want to sit all the back to backs out one half of them. You're good. Sit them out. You don't have to play and you'll still qualify and still be eligible for postseason awards. I think it's more of, and I'm very curious because all the reporting keeps coming with there's conditions around it. Well, what are those conditions? Like, like, well, what does that mean? Is there like, well, X amount of games that the team determines the player can't play like they're, they, those don't count. I don't know how that's going to work, but I, it's one of those things I'm very curious to see, like, you know, what happens and, we all know there's going to be a massive uproar the first time somebody has a great season but only played 64 games, and people are going to absolutely lose their minds, and it'll be, you know, well, they were the real MVP or they were the real first-team player. So I, I I don't know, but I think this was a first attempt at, hey, let's try to get these guys on the, on the court more often, and then we'll see how it comes together. I kind of have my doubts that's going to be how it plays out. Yeah, and I saw that, I believe it was last night, Kawhi Leonard only played a half because he's playing Yeah, it was two nights ago. Yeah, two nights ago because he was going to play on a back-to-back. So do you – and also remember Draymond Green, he came in for one possession to be there for Clay, and then – that obviously changed a lot of things for sports better who took who, who took Draymond Green unders because they heard yep. whispers of this. Is yep. is that something that you think is how teams or players are going to try to skirt the rules? That's where I think the conditions may come in because the league doesn't want to turn it into a circus and a farce of like, hey, you know, tonight. 15 star players checked in or started and then they all subbed out on the first whistle because it was just there. Now, like Drew Holiday did it last year. The Bucks put him in a game for, I think it was like eight seconds or whatever. He played the tip. He committed a foul and he got out of there to earn a bonus because he needed to hit the game's played threshold for his bonuses. Now, that's cool on the Bucks part because all it did was cost them a couple million bucks that they wouldn't have to pay out otherwise. So good on the Bucks for taking care of their guy. But I don't think the league, and I don't think the Players Association either, wants it to turn into a bunch of guys are on the court and then they're subbed out early. But I think what you may see is, you may see, huh, why did so-and-so only play 15 minutes tonight? And that may be what we see more of. Because I think if it becomes a whole thing where we want to make sure Player X is still eligible for his awards, all right, well, we can't sub them out right away because if you play under X minutes, maybe that's one of the conditions. It doesn't count or something like that, and you're just you know subbed without an injury. We'll have to see. Or, you know, if my worry is if you start saying there's injury-related conditions, we're going to get back to the old days of uh, back spasms. They're, they're out tonight, right? And that's that's not great either. So I, 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 I'm, I, I'm kind of withholding judgment on all this till we see what all the details are because it just seems – this one seems like a little – there's just got to be other stuff going on with this because it just seems a little too too cut and dry for me to be quite that simple. Yeah, I'm very sus on it because it yeah. does feel like there's a lot of ways to get around it. I think Joel Embiid 
would have not made Defensive Player of the Year twice. I think Draymond yeah, I think as so. well, Steph Curry, All NBA. And and do you think that this will obviously change how does this help teams in some way too? Because they say to themselves, "All right, well, we don't have to pay." Jalen Brown, the super max, because he's not an all NBA player. So we can re-sign him for X, Y, and Z instead of being hamstrung to pay him 40 million. Well, that's where it's going to become a major problem. And you'll have the MBPA screaming is if all right, we're in game 78 of the season and, oh man, he's almost there. All right, let's sit him out. Like, or we're just not going to play them. And you know, the team will be, well, that's a coach's decision and whatever it is. And if the minute the player's like, well, I'm not on board with this, you did it. So I'm not now eligible. That's part of why I have an issue with the, any of the contract stuff being tied to awards, because I also don't like the fact that right, we're both media members. I don't like the fact that the media is the one who are determining what player contracts are. Like it just feels weird to me. So I don't I don't love that whole idea of this. And I think if you want to do that, there there's ways you could do it that are slightly different where maybe you you know you 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 involve more people, you know, but anytime you start involving players and coaches, then there's agendas and all the voting stuff. And I've been in locker rooms with the all-star voting for the player vote where two guys who don't even play and are at the end of the bench are like, hey, you vote for me, I'll vote for you. And that's why the player vote is kind of turned into a joke too. So I don't necessarily have a great fix for that, but it's just if we run into a games played thing where a guy gets sat to avoid hitting a threshold that would trigger a contract marker for him, that's going to be a major issue. And you're going to hear the screaming from the rooftops on that one. Do you think there's any chance that some of this changes before it gets ratified? I think there's a chance we could see some stuff tweaked. That's why, you know, I think their language in it was like, we have a tentative agreement was very clear. I think there's a reason why, well, if you made a tentative agreement on the wee hours of Saturday morning, like you could have presented it to the board of governors, presented it to the players by today, right? We're recording this on Monday and you could have had this whole thing buttoned up and done and, you know, start printing the copies on you know Tuesday we haven't gotten there because I think it's very clear to me tentative agreement means there's still some stuff we're working through. We're all the big stuff. We're there. It's now it's details. We're down to some of those things. I think some of this stuff might even been floated out there as let's see what the reaction is within the league, within the fans, within the media. Let's see what some of the stuff out there is. And then, Oh, you know what? That got tweaked in a late version of whatever it was and those kind of things. I I just think that's, you know, being a little bit smart about how you play it. And the other thing is, I think we've all learned through the COVID years. And I knew this from my prior career and doing contract negotiations. There's always a thing called the side letter, which is, Hey, we all agreed to this. It's not going the way we want. Let's do a side agreement, an, an amendment, an addendum, whatever whatever you want to call it, where we change whatever it is and we go. And the league and the Players Association has gotten very good through very unfortunate circumstances over the last uh, several years of doing that, you know, when necessary and being able to tweak, tweak their existing agreements rather than, I feel like if this was a decade ago, it would have been, nope. It is what it is, and that's it, and we're not changing it because they didn't have a good working relationship. That's one of the biggest things that's changed. Cool. So let's move out of the CBA. I have some general NBA questions, too. Number one, I need to know what's going on in Toronto because (laughs) – I I have not seen someone go from beloved to hot seat to I need to take time to reflect. It's been a decade and maybe I don't want to coach here anymore. It, what's what's your take on how this has all got to this place with Nick Nurse and his future around the Raptors? Yeah, this is not any sourced reporting, but it's a uh, you know gut gut feel on this is he's gone. Like, I don't, you don't get to all this point with all that noise. And then you with like five or six games left in your season, you're like, Hey, I know we're getting ready to go into the most important parts of our season in the playing tournament, maybe the playoffs. But let me just address this with you guys now. Cause I don't want to do it again. Like that could have been done, you know, before the last game of the year, you could have done it. You could have done it, you know, before your last postseason game, whatever it is. And I think that was a, 
you know, hey, we're trying to do something here over the next few weeks. So let's just run with what we got. But I think it's pretty clear that that's headed for divorce and it's going to go a different way. The whole I'm going to take weeks and uh, that might be turned into I'm going to take days because I have another job offer ready for me. And here we go, because like him or not, and I think some of his antics are a little tiresome. But Nick Nurse is a very, very good coach. And I think there's a handful of teams out there that are going to say, all right, hey, this is a guy, whether it's lift us into title contention because we're already a pretty good team or we're not very good and we want to be good, let's get him in here to kind of move us forward. He's going to have very good opportunities coming his way. If Because uh, there's been a lot of rumors about him maybe being linked to Houston. Mm-hmm. If he's already getting players like OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam to tune him out, which is what the reporting is, in my opinion, Keith, and I'd love to hear yours, there's no way he would want to be a part of a rebuild <laughs> with that sort of roster, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, we were already hearing some of the things there were, you know, poor Steven Silas is out there like telling us openly, like, these guys don't listen. I tell them what to do, and then they don't run the plays. They don't do this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, I I, I think that probably my guess would be if we see Nick Nurse headed to Houston, we're going to see Houston turning their $50 million into cap space, and we're signing some veterans. We're trading some of these kids in packages, and we're turning this thing very quickly into where we're, we're going forward with this. I also don't get the sense that – Houston's ownership is, let's say, the most patient in the world. They get, all right, we did this kind of rebuild thing for a couple of years. Now let's be good again. So I think that could be part of, if that all comes together, like we're hearing some of the rumors, I think you might see that turn into, let's push this thing forward very, very quickly. Another rebuilding team that has questions around its coaching. Uh, rumors are that Pop doesn't know if he's coming back in San Antonio. He's not going to make a decision until uh, he finds out whether they're getting Victor Wampanyama pretty much. <laughs> is, that, is that kind of the long and the short of it? I kind of feel like it might be, right? I, I, th- I think he's kind of looking at it and saying, hey, you're going to deliver me a, you know, not that they're the same kind of player, but give me another Tim Duncan. I'm here. I'll be here next year if it's, uh, you know, we slipped in the lottery and we're getting, uh, you know, the third pick or whatever. Uh, that guy's probably pretty good, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of good. I've, I've done this. I, I think, well, we, I kind of, I don't think Pop's going to be the kind of guy who necessarily – I know some people have said, like, hey, he's going to retire, and then if you see him again, it's going to be because you're part of his inner circle and you're at one of his wine dinners. I don't know if that's going to be how it goes. I, I remember – different sport, but kind of similar type thing. I remember hearing Bobby Bowden, Joe Paterno, talk for years about, hey, if I'm not a football coach, what am I, right? And at this point in my life, this is what kind of keeps me going gets me up every day is to do this. So I kind of wonder if Pop's like, hey, if I'm not in basketball, and I think it's been forgotten because he's been coaching for so long, came out of the front office. And he came out of the front office because it was, hey, we built a mess of a team. I I should be the one who has to deal with this. And then they, you know, lottery odds is the Celtics guy. I remember quite well, we were supposed to get Tim Duncan and Keith Van Horn with Rick Pitino and ended up with Chauncey Billups and uh, Ron Mercer instead. Um, <laughs> it's I think Pop might be like, hey, I can go back and do some work in the front office again and I'll still be around and kind of doing my thing. And I think, you know, a handful of his kind of people who presume maybe to be his successors, they've, they've kind of moved on and gone on because he just keeps doing it. But it wouldn't surprise me if they get Wembenyama if he's right back on the bench again, kind of, hey, I'm going to do my thing and waiting it out until the absolute right person that he feels like I'm ready to hand this off to is available. In the beginning of the season, I told somebody who works for the front office of the Spurs, I said, you know, it's it's such a young, fresh team. The way that they're running the offense feels so different. It's almost like you forget sometimes that it's Pop running the show. And their <laughs> their response to me was, we never forget. We know every day who's running the show is the question, I guess, is like, what does that really mean? Yeah, I think sometimes what that is, is, hey, like we like he's now instead of the I'm in there every single day grinding with this, he kind of becomes like, hey, I oversee this operation, right? I've got. Somebody who's kind of running the defense, somebody who's kind of running this. And that's in general how NBA teams kind of work. I think 
Um, one of the misnomers is that, you know, it, I think because people know NFL coaches love to talk about, I sleep in my office and I get two hours of sleep a night and I'm breaking down film for, you know, a hundred hours a week. And it's like, well, then why? Like, what, what more did you learn in that hundred hours that you couldn't have learned in 40? But I think it's with the NBA coaches and people think like they're heavily involved. And I think sometimes it's, they've, they've, their responsibilities get farmed out to a lot of people and they kind of do their thing. And then what happens with, with the coach is like, all right, now I collect all that information and I form that into what we want to do. And I think for pop, one of the cool things was, I think it was a year ago, we had a chance to talk to him and he was like, you know, I'm kind of re-energized by this. Like I've got a bunch of kids in here now. And we're, then he said, you know, what's cool is we tell them to do something. They go out, they screwed up 10 times and then they finally get it right. And it's like, oh, man, they got it now. Now we can take that and we can build on to that with piece number two. And you just kind of keep adding to it. And I think he's been a little bit re-energized by some of that stuff. But my guess is it's probably a little bit more of a shared responsibility within the organization than it is so much. Hey, Pop's really fully running everything the way it probably was during most of the Duncan, Ginobili, Parker years. Yeah, and the sense that I got was maybe that they're – some of the people there are ready for a, a, a regime change uh, to take place too. Yeah. I kind of wonder if the talent bleed out of the organization with assistant coaches was, man, I can't wait here and be the number two for a million years. Like I got to go. Like I like if we, if we were to talk about college basketball, it was like, I remember for like 20 years, it was well, that guy's going to take over for coach K. Yeah. And then it was, well, he's still here. And, you know, and then it was, you know, Tommy Amaker and Chris Collins and all these guys were in Steve Wojciechowski. Like they were all the next guy and they were all, they all had to go and leave and go other places. And it was like, you know, I kind of wonder if, you know, the, the, you know, Will Hardy's and uh, Becky Hammond and Quinn Snyder's and Ime Udoka and all the ones who were under uh, pop all had to go other places and then eventually it was like, all right, now I got my shot at the top job and I'm kind of running my show. Yo, where do we go with this? I, I think that's probably a little bit of what's gone on there. And maybe it was, man, if you'd gone a year ago or two years ago, we could have had this coach slid him right into the top spot, move forward. And it's just not how it has gone. Yeah. I do want to get your thoughts on the play in tournament as a whole. Now it's a permanent fixture. Do you think it worked out how you originally thought it would or? Or is it better or worse? Better, way better. I, I was not, I, I don't want to say I wasn't a fan. When they did it for the bubble season, I fully got it because you had to do something. You, you couldn't come and play a million games in the bubble. That was just not going to be how it went down. So I, I was like, all right, I kind of like what they did with, with the bubble year. And then they kind of tweaked and adjusted. I, I, I still, part of me kind of wishes, and this year's different because these teams are all right there, that if, hey, if you're the 10th seed, but you're, 12 games behind the nine seed. Thanks for playing, but your season's over. We don't need you involved <laughs> yeah. in a thing, right? You're, you stink and get out of here. <laughs> but I think it's uh, this year, right? These teams are all right pretty close to each other within a couple games. And I think what it's done is it's given the NBA as close as we're ever going to get to our version of March Madness, right? Where it's single game elimination, kind of. I know you lose the first one, you get that second shot at it, but it's pretty cool to watch those games knowing, Hey, this is all on the line, right? It's like, we get a, you know, a week, a, you know, a week of game sevens almost, you know, in the thing. And, and that to me is, you know, a lot of fun. I think that's a really cool process as we, you know, have been able to get that. And then it's like, all right, we had that fun. And now we go into the playoffs. And one of the biggest things I love about the NBA playoffs is the best team usually wins because you're going to, you're tested, right? You, you've got to win four times in seven games and you got to do that four times in a row. And that is, Hey, it wasn't just one bad shooting night knocked us out, but we still get that taste of the NCAA tournament. One bad shooting night knocked us out through the playing tournament. So I think it's been a massive success. Not only that, the combination of the playing tournament plus the flattened lottery odds, which means you don't need to be horrendously bad from you know, the season opener to make sure you can get Victor Wimbanyama. You just need to be bad, like kind of naturally bad. Those two things. I mean, we, it's only this week with less than a week to go in the season that we're starting to get more than the worst four teams in the league eliminated from playoff contention. That's 
massive win to me as teams had something to play for, you know, almost all the way to the end of the year. You get into the last week and that's where we're starting to eliminate our teams. That's a major, major success. And everybody should feel pretty good about that. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much for breaking it all down. That is all the time that we have for this episode of the Heat Check. Massive thanks to my guy, Keith Smith. Make sure you give him a follow on Twitter at KeithSmithMBA. Make sure you read his work at Spotrack.com, S-P-O-T-R-A-C.com. Check back Thursday for an all-new episode. Do not forget to peep the feed for past episodes, interviews, and bonus episodes that drop unexpectedly throughout the week. Sometimes Keith blesses us on BetMGM tonight as well. We post that here. And please follow us the Heat Check as we're almost to the playoffs. Download, subscribe, tell your friends, every single damn one of them. And follow us on social at this Heat Check and at Trista Crick on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, because the Heat Check never sleeps, especially we got a new CBA to get ratified. Thank you.